Hello, and welcome to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be talking about Sandman issue number 23, Season of Mists, chapter 2. The cover date of this was February of 1991. Pencils by Kelly Jones. Inks by Malcolm Jones III. Colorist on the original uh, issues was Daniel Vazo. Uh, Todd Klein as letterer. Tom Payer as assistant editor. And Karen Berger as editor. This issue is largely just two people talking to each other. But for all of that, Brent, this is an extraordinarily dense issue. I think we're going to have a lot to say about this one. A lot of dialogue to pick apart, tear apart, and uh, interrogate uh, more than a little bit. Yeah, there there certainly is a lot going on, even though not a lot was going on. And, you know, we were set up to believe that this might be an action-packed fight that occurs. But that's not quite how things play out. Just wanted to mention off the top that uh, Leslie Klinger in the annotated Sandman has a bit from uh, Neil Gaiman uh, from the script for this issue when he talks about um, that a lot of people think that people plot things out well in advance and that's not always the case for him. But for this particular issue, it was something that he had thought about doing sometime around the time he wrote Sandman issue number four, which was in May 1988. And then he mentioned, though, to Rick Veach, who was a comics artist writer, that he was thinking about this idea about some kind of a storyline called King in Hell that would be a uh, a fight regarding kind of hell and who rules it. And uh, Veach said, no, no, I've got an idea I'm going to do on that. So, Neil backed off. So, Rick Veach is uh, most known for um, a lot of work he did on Swamp Thing. So, um, Rick Veach wanted to tell the story of Lucifer quitting. Um, as far as I know, that's uh, the only thing it had in common with this story is uh, Lucifer quitting. Um, but it, he later retold it in his um, his version in uh, his King Hell comics. Well, that'll be some interesting fodder then for us to think about in the wrap-up episode for Season of Mist. We've already, you know, have the sort of big picture question to talk about, you know, is, is would this story be better served if this were, you know, the second issue rather than the third issue? But then also to, to think about the pros and cons of placing this story arc earlier than we get it, uh, I think also might be an interesting uh, an interesting question to, to take up. And also, maybe that gives us something to read <laughs> in between Sandman volumes. Yeah. Uh, I certainly would be interested in checking out uh, how someone else has taken this same basic concept and, and run with it. Though, of course, we have not actually gotten yet to that concept. It's in this issue that we are going to get that, you know, that premise for this entire story arc, and of course, not actually until the end. So maybe we should uh, start at the beginning, as we usually do, and is this generally good advice? And so, yeah, this issue opens really not long after chapter one closed out. Dream is still in the process of traveling to hell, and he does this by flying between the worlds. And this empty place between the worlds is no place at all. It is nowhere, literally nowhere. Still, though, there is a wind here, a cold wind. Right before Dream gets to hell, he contemplates giving up this quest and also actually just not going back to the dreaming, just staying here in this place between the worlds, safe and cold and alone. But of course, 
he can't do that, right? We all do as we must do, he thinks to himself. This is, uh, I think, many layers of foreshadowing here, but one shadow, at least, we are going to get in this issue. That's about Lucifer. But before we even get to Hellbrand, I actually want to talk about cosmology, which <laughs> that's something we're going to be doing a lot of here in Season of Mist, because I want to be clear that although we have seen that in this speculative world, there are other planets and other solar systems that have sentient life on them, uh, you know, kind of scientific understanding of multiple places where different types of creatures might be alive. There are also places like hell and the dreaming that do not exist as physical places in the observable universe. And We've actually had all of this before, but I'm just not sure if we have really ever spelled that out. So there it is. I've, I've at least done that now. But what I'm really interested in here is that these worlds do seem to exist in something akin to outer space, which is to say that there is this empty space between them. And I guess I just never really noticed this before. And I had really been operating, you know, I guess when we were thinking about fairy, you know, which we've had in A Midsummer Night's Dream, just thinking that you can open these portals and then show up in another world. But really, is it that you're just getting on a kind of highway and then you can choose which exit to take? Is that how this works, do you think? It, it seems to vary quite a bit. Um, and we'll see this a little bit more later, and particularly when we'll likely cover the books of magic. Uh, four-part series that Neil Gaiman did. There's sometimes there seems to be some kind of a um, transit time and or space that you have between these places, and sometimes it's it's instantaneous. Depending on how close the the bounds are, it could also be other th factors defining it. It's never entirely clear to me um, what's going on there. But you're right to say that you know we have the DC you know, universe as it is. So we know there's Kryptonians and we know there's Daxamites and we know there's all kinds of other um, spacefaring people. But then we have things like the dreaming. We have things like hell. And they seem to – I always uh, back it up in my mind because at a formative time, uh, if you spend too much time looking at Dungeons and Dragons manuals, this is how you think <laughs> of things. Um, but that you've got like a layering of planes effect where like you've got a prime material plane, if you will, and that's where you can have the planets and space and normal physics apply, et cetera, et cetera. But then you have kind of things that slightly feed into or overlap or just to the side of. So for fans of Stranger Things, this is the upside down. For modern D&D, this is like the Shadowfell is essentially the upside down and vice versa, which maybe the shadow fell and the upside down is just a part of the autumn court of fairy, um, <laughs> you know, for fans of, you know, normal uh, uh, kind of high fantasy. So it's interesting to me, though, that there is this transit time. And we, we've seen this before where when he first goes to hell, he goes to that pier and then he kind of jumps slash falls off of the pier and is like journeying there long enough that he can think about what he's about to do. It's interesting to think of hell as having more of a partition between it and particularly our world versus the other way around. Cause you'd think, I mean, versus the shorter gap, you'd think that hell would be close at hand, but apparently it seems to be offset by quite a bit. Right. I mean, one of the things that we're going to start talking about here covering this issue, but then I think probably we'll do quite a bit of work about in the wrap-up episode for Season of Mists, is to think about hell as a, as a place and its relationship with other places that we have seen. And then to think about all of that, of course, vis-a-vis -vis the long literary tradition of imagining both hell and heaven. I mean, we're going to 
talk about Dante and Milton a lot. <laughs> you know, we, we have invoked them already, of course, even all the way back in A Hope in Hell, but we're going to be doing a lot of that. But yeah, it does seem like it ought to be, you know, you feel closer to, to Earth than it does, though, though maybe it does. I mean, maybe the long distance is really just, you know, the dreaming. Yeah, maybe it is that dreaming's further off, or maybe it's just that because it is hell, <laughs> the transit is not going to be easy. As someone who's spent a lot of time commuting, um, both of us, Glenn, have experienced <laughs> the fact that sometimes a uh, long transit time, uh, particularly if you're not expecting it, couldn't feel like hell. I did want to note Leslie Klinger here uh, makes reference to some Kipling. He notes that in Tomlinson, in 18, 1891 poem by Richard, Richard Kipling, the titular subject stands before the gates of heaven and, quote, the wind that blows between the worlds, it cuts him like a knife. Um, and that wind between the worlds is also a phrase that was adopted in 1820 by Alice Brown uh, for the title of a spiritualist novel of the same name and attributing it back to Kipling specifically. So it could be that uh, the wind between the worlds here is just also uh, Neil kind of nodding at Kipling. Um with Kipling in regards to heaven and hell being here. And perhaps as we'll get into a little bit more, there is some dark symmetry that exists between these two places. Yeah, this is awesome. And of course we've seen, I mean, like literally just very recently, we have seen how important Kipling is to, to Neil Gaiman. So I just jotted that down while you were talking, Brent, I've got that on the, the, uh, the file here. That is things we might do in between season of Mists and the next <laughs> volume. Cause, um, as much as it would be fun, we're definitely not going to do either the Inferno or Paradise Lost, but, uh, we'll take a look, see if there's a Kipling poem that does some of the same, same lifting, but, uh, perhaps fewer verses and we can, uh, we can check that out. But yeah, let's get to Dream's arrival here. He, he arrives at hell. We get a really, really impressive two page title page here, big spread of some of the walls of hell and, and also its main gate. All of this, I mean, it just looks like it was done by H.R. Geiger, right? Except for, I guess there's one there's one exception to this, Brent. I don't know if you uh, glimpsed this, but all the way at the top left, there's actually this one building that looks like an early modern European cottage that is stacked on top of <laughs> some of the creepy like demon bone wall. And uh, I don't know what that cottage is for, but it's where I want to live. I mean, it reminds me a lot of when we first see in the second issue... Dream, returning to the dreaming and coming upon the houses of mystery um, and secrets um, in that they're kind of this, you know, kind of a similar cottage looking thing going on. But um, the second volume of the Absolute Edition does have a reproduction of the script for this issue in it. But Klinger does note from the script itself uh, that Neil gave quite a bit of information about kind of what he was thinking in terms of the architecture for hell. So I'm going to go ahead and um, read this. It's a little long, but uh, I think it's nonetheless very interesting. You probably remember from reading H.P. Lovecraft as a child that he's prone occasionally to talk about Cyclopean masonry at subtly wrong angles, which is huge and towering and somehow horrible. Well, let's do that. The whole thing to concentrate on here is scale, the towering immensity of scale. We're looking at a wall with huge and nightmarish architecture. It's horrible, vile, and huge. Blocks and bricks and rocks and fragments of statues and bits of skyscrapers and lumps of masonry. Huge buttresses coming out. See if you can get any references on the cathedral at Notre Dame, then lose the gargoyles. This is a wall. Here and there, set in the wall, we see a tiny barred window. 
Now also set into the wall, the opening roughly in the middle of the double-page spread is a huge gate, large enough for a small cathedral to walk through without bending down, two barred metal and wooden doors. About halfway up, probably not even visible, is a tiny keyhole, the size of a normal keyhole. One of the gates has swung inward slightly, a distance of feet, which at this scale is just inches. That's really awesome. I was going to make a different H.P. Lovecraft joke because to me, this weird out of place, very tall cottage jutting up reminded me just of, of Lovecraft's story, The Strange High House in the Mist. And I don't know, maybe that's there on purpose <laughs> given these instructions. Because there is, you know, there is something Lovecraftian perhaps uh, uh, about this, but I, I don't think I really see that type of interpretation here. And I don't really see a lot of Notre Dame here either. To me, this really does look like it's been very influenced by H.R. Geiger's work for the Alien franchise as kind of its its first order inspiration. Yeah. And I think the cathedral is just that the fact that you've got specific towers that are off of it, and it's the immensity of scale that I think is, you know, the Cyclopean nature is really the Lovecraftian nod. But the actual definition of the We'll call it masonry, although it's not clear that some of these things aren't just, you know, the bones of dead creatures right. or bone dead gods or something. Um, but, you know, it does very much have these, you know, bony appendages throughout. We've got the horns and smiling like teeth of something that maybe it is alive and it's smiling. Maybe it is something that died and then to mock it, it's been reconstructed as a smiling part of this front gate. I mean, I do, I definitely see that kind of. Uh, the geigerness of it all. Well, you raise an interesting question that I had not considered, Brent, which is how did these walls and the gates come to be, right? Are they something that was constructed by somebody or did they come into existence in some other way? And and this is actually maybe part of a broader question that, that did actually occur to me, which is that the, the doors inside these walls are referred to by dream as the doors to hell uh, and and the the main gate. So if we're thinking about it in that way, then what's inside the wall and maybe the walls themselves are hell and what's outside of it is not hell. But we do actually get this image here of dream standing, you know, good, I don't know, 30 feet maybe in front of the gate as he's walking to it, which gives us a great sense of scale here that gives us that cyclopean sense of scale, which is amazing. But we also see some landscape, like there's mountains out here. He has footprints behind him, right? So there's matter out here outside of the walls. And so my question really is, I mean, maybe two things really, but you know, is this area where Dream is walking right now in these mountains we can see back there, is that hell or is that the place between the worlds? And then, you know, also how, where did these walls come from? Like, is this just landscape someplace that Lucifer wound up in and then put people to work. You know, got some masons to do this. There's a lot of questions. There. Yes, sorry. Um, <laughs> so let me try to take them in no particular order. Um, I was thinking of it perhaps uh, not as humorously as I want to make it, uh, but still that this is like the frontage, right? So <laughs> there is a right of way, uh, and it's just uh, for those who have uh, sidewalks. Uh, if you've got a house or you were aware of houses. There's that sometimes that strip of grass that is uh, on the one hand owned by you. On the other hand, there is all kinds of rights you that other people have to use it as 
uh, the ability to transit freely to, you know, get to fire hydrants and utilities and so on and so forth. Right. So this is an area that is appended to hell in terms of the, the property ownership. Lucifer owns this part of the land, but he's actually not allowed to build anything there. He owns it. He can't do anything with it, but he is obligated to keep the lawn mowed. Yes, yeah. He may not. He may not owe it. Com- own it completely in fee simple, if you will. And when I look at this gate and I think about who built it, I also then am reminded of the fact that this gate looks very different from the gate that we saw back in issue four. Right. So is the gate perhaps the idea of the gate is immutable, but the gate itself is very mutable um, in that. It appears the way it should appear for the person looking at it or for the occasion. In this case, we've got Dream, this time in his helm, appearing to have a fight if he's ready for, you know, he's showing up ready to have a fight if he needs to. Um, and so he gets the mocking face gateway versus last time when he, there wasn't the, you know, uh, the foreknowledge of his arrival. Um, and so the gate was not arrayed just for him. This might be a, a gate that is actually depicting hell as maybe Lucifer or someone else, you know, whoever's in charge of the, you know, the chief of the gate of hell, uh, thought that it would be the appropriate way to dress for the occasion of the coming of the Lord of Dreams to do battle with hell, perhaps. Um, and so to, uh, put him on guard, to perhaps mock him, uh, perhaps something else. It's, it's not entirely clear, but I also want to note, cause wrapped up in the many questions you had there, Glenn, uh, we're also led to believe that a lot of the aspects of the landscape and then maybe the architecture of hell is a parallel of either heaven or parts of the silver city. Um, which in DC continuity exists outside of heaven and that this is kind of a dark reflection. So it could just be that if we were to see what the gates of those places were to look like, they would look like a non Geiger version of this as well. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I think you've got to be right about the mutability here, because literally on the next page, Dream says, hell is mutable if you've got the right authority, and I have some bit of authority even here, so I can mutate the, the landscape of hell to suit my needs, which is really just about helping him helping him travel. But yeah, that's that's a great way to also retcon the fact that the gates look different. We are going to hear a little bit more about the Silver City from Lucifer near the end of this story, and so uh, I intend there, Brent, to ask you to put your comics historian hat on and tell us about that. But I'm also, uh, I need you to remind me because <laughs> there's going to be so much going on <laughs> yep. uh, when we get into the that, that part of the conversation is just dense with material that we need to unpack. Uh, but let's get on with Dream's business here, right? I think something we haven't actually said so far is that, hey, yeah, Dream is here to get Nada. That's what he's doing. He's come here to free Nada. And as you said, Brent, he's made such a big deal out of the danger in coming here. We've been preparing ourselves, just as Dream has been preparing himself, for a big, epic fight, a battle with Lucifer. But Dream finds that the gates are open and that he is able to travel to Nada's cell unimpeded and, and surprisingly unimpeded, right? He's expecting lots of impediment here, and there is none. But then he finds that she isn't there. Obviously, what has happened here is that Lucifer has moved her because, you know, he knows that Dream is coming. So he's moved her. He's hidden her from Dream. But then Dream realizes that actually no one is here. All the dead souls are gone. The demons are all gone. And it's quiet. Something is very wrong 
And of course, it must be a trick. And he shouts for Lucifer, and Lucifer answers. And before Dream will take off his helmet and talk with Lucifer face to face, Lucifer swears that he will do nothing to harm Dream so long as they are within the bounds of hell. And then this is where we get Lucifer explaining that he's quit. He's resigning. He's abdicating as the ruler of hell. He has kicked everyone out, and now he's locking up the gates, and he's going to leave. And Dream asks, can you do that? And uh, I guess, Brent, I have the same question, because isn't Lucifer imprisoned here? Well, that's something I think we're going to touch on a lot um, as we go in this comic. Um, Is Lucifer imprisoned? Well, I think Lucifer is imprisoned is something we probably could all agree to. Um, but there is an idea presented here, um, not directly stated, um, about Lucifer that maybe he is imprisoned here because he thinks he should be imprisoned here. Um, cause we're, we're introduced to the idea of why all of the other people who are here suffering are here. They're here because they've chosen to be here and they think this is where they go. Um, and so they're here, but they're not actually they're they're the architects of their own kind of suffering in that way so perhaps similarly lucifer is here because he thinks that this is where he has to be and in this issue and the events leading up to it between the prior issue and this one he realizes wait no i don't just like i think that it's stupid that these mortals who are here think that i'm torturing them Maybe also I don't need to be here being tortured by being here as well. And just like they have the freedom to leave and perhaps, you know, because Lucifer as kind of a freedom of choice and ultimately making his own decisions um, and then paying the consequences for those. But like the biggest freedom, as he mentions, is perhaps the freedom to know that he can just leave. Yeah, I think that has to be the case. And this is different from what we get in most Abrahamic cosmology about Lucifer. I mean, I think most famously, you know, we get this image of Lucifer in Dante and the the Inferno, where Lucifer is not, I mean, it's not even just that Lucifer is imprisoned in hell, which is pretty ubiquitous, a pretty ubiquitous understanding of you know where Lucifer is, but that he's actually even just frozen in hell and totally immobile. And and so obviously, although we've talked before in A Hope in Hell and some other places, and we'll do again about the extent to which Gaiman is drawing on the Inferno, Dante's Inferno, as part of the rich tradition of literary understandings of hell, this is definitely one of the ways in which he is he is not uh, invoking Dante here at all, because, you know, Lucifer, not in a block of ice, free to move around. And it does seem we're going to get later on uh, in this particularly dense conversation where the Silver City is invoked, that it's it's like Lucifer is realizing that actually, technically, my punishment was just getting kicked out of heaven. So like, yeah, I could go anywhere that's not heaven. That's the place I can't go. So maybe a beach would be nicer than here. And this is something, so there's, we're, we're pulling here again at threads of, does Lucifer have responsibility as king of hell? And if you have responsibilities, can you just walk away from them? And that's something that, you know, we've seen up to this point that Morpheus believes that there are very fine lines and distinctions of what you are and are not permitted to do. And he is wary of doing anything that he shouldn't be permitted to do. He uh, very much 
sometimes to his benefit, sometimes not to his benefit. He wraps himself in kind of his badges and responsibilities of office that he must do X because it is expected. But if there's not an enforcement mechanism, expected by whom and can't you just walk away? Um, I did want to also mention here, Leslie Klinger notes that in a 1995 interview, Neil Gaiman noted that in the writings of a Parisian theologian, so I'm now going to slaughter his name, uh, a B. Arthur uh, Mugnier, or it could be Mugnier, um, who was 1853 through 1944, he was a Parisian theologian and close friend of Edith Wharton, about whom various sources tell the story that when asked if he believed in hell, he answered, quote, yes, because it is a dogma of the church, but I don't believe there's anyone in it. Um, and so then here we have this idea of like, if there has to be a hell because there is, you know, in the dogma of the church or anything that there is a hell, but what actually qualifies someone to be in hell, particularly depending on how you view the redemptive, the many redemptive pathways that might be available to, to souls, <laughs> you know, there, there's a lot of options here. And so, yeah, Lucifer perhaps coming to the realization that he, not being able to return to the Silver City and not being able to, again, you know, be in the visage of the creator, as it's referred to in the DC universe, is the punishment. And the rest of this is just him kind of self-inflicting his own punishment of being here. Or maybe at a time he enjoyed it, but if the time to enjoy it is gone and he takes no pleasure from being here, then why be here? And it could also be that the actions he's going to take as we talk, might talk about later, this issue could have give him something else that he might want by adding to the burden of dream. Yeah. I think when we get a little bit more text here from Lucifer in this issue, we should think about the extent to which Lucifer's motivations here are, are positive in the sense of he wants to go do something. There's something he wants to accomplish or negative in the sense that there's there's just something he wants to get rid of, wants to do away with, doesn't want to experience anymore. While you were talking about uh, 19th century <laughs> Parisian theology there, Brent, I, I, I was reminded again I was reminded of another way in which Gaiman is doing something very different from what Dante does, which is that actually this barren landscape that we see outside of the gates of hell in in, in Dante's conception, and well, not just Dante's conception, right? Dante is is writing a magnificent epic poem, or, or well, actually a comedic poem, I suppose technically about about medieval high medieval cosmology, right? High medieval Christian cosmology. He's turning it into this beautiful work of literature, but the idea there is that actually there's this place called limbo that is right outside of hell. And that is for people who can never enter heaven, uh, which is different from purgatory, which is a place where people who are not yet ready to get into heaven have to spend a little bit or a lot bit of time preparing, working on uh, making themselves ready to dwell eternally in the presence of God, the the house of God that has uh, as, as many mansions or many rooms or many dwellings, perhaps. And the purgatory differs from limbo and that limbo is a place for people who are never going to be given access to heaven. Uh, for Dante, you know, in the Inferno, this is largely where uh, pre-Christian pagans live. Uh, this is actually where Virgil, who serves as Dante's guide, lives. But that is right outside of hell. Like, it's right outside of the gates. And obviously, we don't see that here. We don't see limbo here. 
Well, unless that is part of the landscape that we uh, saw outside the gate, as you mentioned, that we have a little bit of the landscape there. So it could be that that's the 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 front part of the lawn near the curb uh, is limbo. <laughs> yeah, it could be. That's interesting <laughs> because too, because the way that Dante conceives of of limbo in the Inferno is actually that it's a pretty awesome place. It is. It's actually probably a well. In fact, it is definitely a nicer place to be in residence than Purgatory is. But Purgatory is. You know, where you are going to work on getting entrance to heaven, which is the best place you can be. But that limbo is actually very much like a, a, a pleasant retirement home for the souls of people who didn't really ever have the opportunity to be saved through the grace of Christ. That's, that's a simplistic uh, explanation if ever there was one. But the way that Dante conceives of limbo is as the Elysian fields of uh, Greek and, and Roman uh, religious conception of that's the best place that you can get to when you die. And I don't know that the um, the landscape that we see in this splash page uh, looks looks like that to me. But maybe it's the mountains. You got to go a little further. You know, for fans of the television show, The Good Place, you have to get on the train to go to the medium place uh, where you then find the house, which is not in a great landscape. But, you know, if you can occupy yourself uh, over the hours, then um, – it's an okay place to be. It's not the best place. It's not the worst place. Well, let's uh, let's keep talking about the landscape of hell here because one of the things that's going on here is that Lucifer still has some work to do before he can leave. There are actually a few stragglers, uh, some souls and demons who haven't left hell yet, and he needs to get them to go away. And then he needs to lock up the gates. And so Dream is going to accompany Lucifer while he does this. And that means that we're also going to get a small tour. So interestingly here, I mean, we do have Dream kind of playing the role of Dante and Lucifer playing the role of Virgil in the Inferno in that you're going to get a small tour here with a guide, you know, a knowledgeable guide here. This all starts off with Lucifer explaining that hell is inconceivably vast, just like heaven is, because as you mentioned earlier, Brent, Hell is heaven's shadow, or maybe Lucifer thinks a better way to think about it is to to conceive of hell as heaven's dark reflection. And we do get some landscape of hell here. There are some buttes and some very sharp mountains. This actually, I think, looks a lot like I've imagined Mordor to be, really. Uh, We do also get some more weird early modern European architecture here, like an entire village that's very cool. And we see all of this as Dream and Lucifer are heading to some place that Lucifer calls the slabs above the starving Jubilee. All of this just makes me yearn for a map. Like I want to see a map of this place. I want more story set in this place for sure. But uh, let's actually go meet the person who is refusing to leave hell. Uh, He is chained to a rock. He's got a bunch of hooks and nails in him, and it's all very, very gruesome. And his name is Breschow, and he has been here for 1,100 years. When he was alive, he lived in Livonia, which is on the coast of the Baltic Sea. He seems to have been a ruler of some sort, and he did some really heinous, I think is the word that I'll use. He did some really heinous things. I am not going to repeat them or describe them, uh, but we are in full-on horror comic mode here with the descriptions of what he did to other human beings. And Breschow really does not want to go. He is receiving his just punishment for his crimes. But Lucifer sends him away. And that's actually where he says Breschow has gone, just 
away, right? Dream asks him, where did he go? And Lucifer can only say, away. But I think what really matters here, Brent, is that in the conversation between Lucifer and Breschow, Gaiman shows us very clearly that he is adopting Dante's notion of why people are here. And you've already invoked this. The idea is that it is not that people are here because they are being punished by God. It is that they would actually rather be here than in heaven and that they are torturing themselves. Uh, Though also, as we've said, there are a lot of ways in which Gaiman is not mirroring what we find in the Inferno, which I I do think is something that we'll want to take up in the wrap-up episode. But I do think it's extremely important to note that people are not here because they are being punished by God. They have come here on, on their own. They may not have consciously made a choice, but they have subconsciously at least made a choice to live eternally with their sin rather than to live eternally in the, the, the grace of God in heaven. And I guess a question that I've got for you, Brent, is really how much of that is Gaiman and how much of that is something that's already been conceived of as the way that the DC Comics universe operates. I mean, I think a lot of that is pure Gaiman. What he is pulling from DC Comics is the idea that there is a hell. Um, He also is drawing and makes reference to the Silver City, um, which interestingly enough, when I was looking back uh, just now as we were talking about it on when Lucifer mentions the Silver City explicitly, it is when they are flying over that um, kind of medieval looking city and he mentions that – It's like asking how big the Silver City is, is to ask how big hell is. Uh, The Silver City was originally something created by Jerry Siegel and Bernard Bailey in More Fun Comics number 52, published in uh, cover date February 1940. Um, And it's something that exists, quote, outside the created order of things, unquote. And it predates the rest of creation. I'm not finding reference to it existing. um, Leslie Klinger doesn't mention that origin. I don't find any kind of usage of it again in DC continuity until the Seasons of Mist storyline where Lucifer mentions it. And then it quite frequently pops up in the Lucifer spinoff series that will be written. But also Neil Gaiman himself uses the Silver City in one of his short stories, uh, Murder Mysteries. And we can probably assume that it's a similar Silver City, even though it's outside DC continuity again. But this idea that like who goes to hell and why, I don't think there's been any hard and fast in DC continuity. There's Again, we've had instances where heroes journey to hell, as we've had for thousands and thousands of years in literature. Uh, that, that That's kind of why you create an underworld or a hell is so someone can go there, I guess, right? Yes. <laughs> It's, 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 uh, it's, it's what we call smart dungeon mastering, by the way, for DD is just like, don't bother inventing or detailing a geographic location unless somebody actually needs to either come from or go to there. But yeah, this, this idea of the souls are kind of here, kind of because they've chosen to be here is very much something that Neil Gaiman is giving us with, I think, I think lines up nicely with, which we talked about last issue, I believe, his conception of the role of death kind of as, not the person who brings what you deserve, but rather is just like the helpful steward who gets you from where you are in the mortal plane to wherever you're going without a determination as to what you deserve or where you should be. Or again, there's not, we're not breaking out the scales on this one unless you're the one who wants the scales to be broken out. 
Yeah, that seems to be exactly right here. And that's really, really interesting. I'm, I'm also, I also really appreciate, Brent, that, that history of the Silver City and DC Comics because I, I, yeah, I had never encountered it before. And of course, yeah, okay, it's from the 40s and no one, no one did anything with it again until Gaiman did, which is, uh, that's one of Gaiman's sticks for sure, is uh, deep, deep, deep cuts and bringing them back here in the Sandman. That's really fascinating. I, I wonder if we could find that issue. I would love to check that out and see how that's done. But yeah, obviously, Heaven is born for storytelling purposes, unless you're actually doing the story of, you know, the of the war in heaven, right? Lucifer's rebellion to begin with, you know, like Milton does. Otherwise, there's, there's not really all that much to do there, right? But yeah, hell, Hades, different versions of the underworld are, you know, everywhere in epic literature. Because going down into the scary part of the afterlife and coming back out again, that's an exciting, that's an exciting story, right? I mean, you can think of, you know, what, why is your hero having to go down there? You know, what's the plot point there? What's the beat? Then you can have obstacles to have to overcome to get back out again, or even just to get in in the first place. And, you know, there's a reason why, certainly after Odysseus does this in the Odyssey, that every every major hero has to do something like this, including Luke Skywalker, right? Luke Skywalker goes to the underworld on, on Dagobah, even. Yeah, he has to enter the cave, and then what he ends up confronting is not what he expects, which is usually the uh, the fun kind of twist anytime someone goes to the underworld, is it's not what you expect it is, um, which is, I think, exactly what uh, Dream is encountering here. He expected to go to hell, and that perhaps there would be a fight even, and that's not what he gets at all. He's not going to get what he expects. And for people, people, for entities like Dream, the unexpected may actually be like the way that hell would manifest what he should expect, even more so because of his rigid view of the order of things, being confronted by something that is a little bit more chaotic of it's not what you expected at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite in some ways. You're not having to fight for anything, you're not getting what you want, but you're getting something else by the end of this. The other nice thing I want to go back to the mention of the Silver City um, that Neil does here is I mean, the Silver City is a convenient thing for the story to reference. It's also a fun thing for fans of DC Comics or fans of any comics, just because, again, one of the co-creators of it is Jerry Siegel, who everyone knows along with his partner, Joe Schuster as the creators of Superman. So here we have not just winking back to DC continuity, but winking back to the creator of superhero, <laughs> as we know, understand in a modern sense um, of the word. Leslie Klinger does give us a little bit of information about um, the character Bashaw and the mention of Livonia that we get. He notes in the annotated Sandman that uh, uh, Livonia is a place that did exist. Um, bordering on the Baltic Sea. Uh, Latvia and Estonia are the modern-day nations that occupy where Livonia once was. And uh, in 1998, Neil Gaiman wrote, quote, I've been fond of Livonia ever since I learned that it was famous for its werewolf cults, where hundreds of unwilling villagers would be bespelled off for a couple of years to live as werewolves in the desert. The idea for Bashaw for the Bashaw character, probably came from a seed planted in Jurgen, James Branch uh, Cable's novel, um, where he meets his father, Koth, who is being tortured in hell, although not entirely to his satisfaction, unquote. So that's all Neil remarking on where the idea came from for Bashaw, but also just his fondness for what he heard about Livonia in terms of werewolves being in deserts, um, which is 
Werewolves and Deserts, I think is um, you and Brandon's fifth punk album, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, we've done surprisingly few werewolf stories actually over on Elder Side, which we have, I think we have commented on on the air that we've done surprisingly few werewolf stories. And that's probably something we ought to rectify. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating letter. I really wondered where Gaiman got the idea to take this character from Livonia, which is a fairly deep cut. Livonia, um, I actually had a lot of exposure to the medieval history of this part of the world as an undergrad, simply by the accident of my undergraduate advisor being someone who uh, worked on the uh, crusades, uh, the high and late medieval crusades that took place in this region. And so uh, I took a, an advanced level course with her about this region of the world in uh, during the Middle Ages, and so got to learn all sorts of things. And in fact, it was right after I took that class that I did my second read of the Sandman. In fact, my first read kind of just doing it straight through all the way and was almost certainly the first time that I actually knew what Livonia was. And Livonia is cool. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, the language is, is gone now. The Livonian language is, has been gone for quite a, quite a while now, but it is uh, a member of the Uralic languages like Hungarian and Finnish and Estonian. So, um, they have really distinct linguistic history from the majority of other languages spoken in Europe and so on. So yeah, very cool, uh, very cool region. And we do learn some things about Breschau here and what that, that might actually give us some context to his life because he, he says that uh, you know one of the many horrible things that he did to other humans, one of them was to force the true prophets of the Lord to dance upon plates of iron under which fires were burning and he laughed as they danced. And this term prophets of the Lord is really interesting. I mean, I assume, you know, I think really anytime you say of the Lord, you're certainly invoking the Abrahamic God and probably in this context are invoking Christianity. But prophets is a real weird term here because there would not have been anyone running around in the central Middle Ages, I think, calling themselves a prophet versus, say, uh, you know, a priest, a monk, a missionary, or something like that. And so I wonder even who Breschow is talking about here. And I, I have to assume that he's referring to missionaries because at the time that he's ruling, this would not have actually been a Christian area. Like none of his subjects would have really been Christian. He certainly himself would not have been a, a Christian at this point, but he certainly is tormenting, I mean, people who sound to me like they must be Christian missionaries. Yeah. That's what I was thinking originally as well, Glenn, because um that he was talking about missionaries as the true prophets, which he might very well be. Um, but I also kind of in my own headcanon have now thought maybe he's just referring to prophets of some other religion that also has long since been forgotten. And so all of his tale just is kind of merely kind of a footnote and, you know, kind of goes with Lucifer's point about you did a terrible thing long ago. No one remembers who you are. Nobody really remembers where you even come from. And maybe also like no one remembers even what religion these were prophets of. Yeah, I'd like to think it's the werewolf religion. <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, yeah, maybe, these, maybe were, it is. these were werewolves. I don't, I don't know. Though then you would want plates of silver, I guess, not plates of iron. But right, that's the, the whole point, of course, of this is Lucifer saying, look, dude, you've been here for 1100 years. Is that, isn't that long enough to be doing this punishment to yourself, be punishing yourself this way? And it turns out it's, it's, it's not actually. Well, now I'm imagining that they're werewolves, but they're not. They're like fey werewolves. So it's like the cold iron is really what. Is affecting them more than anything else. So, oh, man. Well, now we're just starting to write our own fan Now fiction. we're just writing our own thing, which uh, if you want to follow more of, uh, claytemplemedia.com. 
Yeah, I mean, well, I might actually write that story, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we got to go deal with uh, these demons briefly too, and then then actually we're going to get into I think the real, but for me anyway, Brett is the real heart of the episode. But yeah, at this point, right, Lucifer has sent Breschau packing. He was the last remaining human soul here, but there are still these demons. These are actually pretty easily dispatched, though they look very cool. I mean, you know, their their particular features are very cool, and one of them, I guess, actually is some kind of weird demonic werewolf thing. Yeah, he's a great demonic werewolf. Um, and I wonder if that was, um, and I don't, I've not seen the script. Um, and I don't have any indication here from, uh, Klinger as to whether Neil's the one who came up with the idea of how these would look. My guess is they were at least suggestions. So perhaps he either mentioned werewolves in connection with the demon or he might have mentioned them to, um, Kelly Jones in connection with the art. Um, and that's the reason why we get basically a praying mantis with the head of a wolf, um, with, so many wonderful teeth. Um, and then we have a kind of a fly headed creature reminds me of, you know, the fly from, uh, uh, the films. Yeah. That's definitely Jeff Goldblum. But, uh, in a very like well-fitted suit with his tie nicely in order, like, uh, which is great. And then we have what looks like, I don't know, like a large baby, but with like a snake coming out of its belly, which is just fun. And they're just sitting around the fire, kind of bickering with each other. And this is straight out of The Hobbit, except that they're trolls and not demons. But this feels like exactly like this scene from The Hobbit to me, uh, which uh, which is which is also then delightful. This I, I, I think this scene here might actually be the reason why I would want to take a look at the script, just to see how much of these illusions that we're clearly seeing here, right, uh, were actually directed by Gaiman. But all right, let's... Uh, Let's go to this big, rich, dense conversation that Dream and and Lucifer are going to have, because these demons are also easily dispatched. And so now they're alone, Dream and Lucifer, I mean, and they're they're talking. And here we get some backstory. We get a, a brief biography of Lucifer that is also just full of cosmology for this speculative world. And and this, to me, this is all just incredibly fascinating. I mean, it gets my heart just just thumping with, with real excitement here. One of the things that we learn is that Lucifer was the first one here in hell, and that was 10 billion years ago. And he comments that they've all changed since then. Even Dream is now a very different person than he was back then, 10 billion years ago. Lucifer, of course, is a fallen angel. And when he was an angel in heaven, he was known as Samael. And Dream actually remembers Lucifer as that person. He remembers Lucifer when he was Samael. He was very proud but also very beautiful and wise and passionate. And and all this was back in the Silver City, which we've talked about already. All of this was back at the beginning of things. And we learned that it was cold then. And Samuel, which is to say Lucifer, rebelled against God, right? rebelled against the creator. And then he and his fellow rebels fell for a long, long time until they came to rest in this place, right? In, in hell, here in hell. And he's never going to be able to return to paradise. He's never going to be able to return to the Silver City. And Lucifer has had some time to reflect on this now, right? 10 billion years, it turns out, he's had to reflect on this. And now he thinks that he wasn't really defying God's rule when he rebelled. He he thinks that maybe his rebellion was really God's plan all along, and that if he hadn't been the one to start the rebellion, another angel would have done that. And so all of this, Brent, right, this is exposition of a sort, but I do think that it maybe raises more questions than it at least 
explicitly answers, but I think we should try to answer the big question here of why and, and also when Lucifer rebelled, because there are two major traditions in the Abrahamic religions that, that both can't be true, or at least I don't think they can both be true. And I wonder if Gaiman is picking a side here. So maybe let's start with why Lucifer rebelled. And I guess the question I have for you, Brent, is just, do you find an answer to that question in this sad trip down memory lane? Do we, do we find some hints of a reason as to why Lucifer rebelled? I don't think we do in the context of this issue. You know, there are lots of you know, lots of times, I think at least in Lucifer comic, there's mention of jealousy that uh, God created man and that caused the angels to um, feel some of them at least to feel that they don't want to be subservient to man. Um, and also they are then shut off from feeling as close and as special. Um, you know, they're, they, they are the first child and they are angry that the parent seems to provide more attention to the second child, the newborn, um, who also is weaker and needs more help, um, right? But then there's also the narrative of the Garden of Eden in terms of you know, tempting the, 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 the Adam and Eve to do something, and it is in tempting them that you've, you've kind of indirectly violated the law because the snake did not do something that the snake was not supposed to do explicitly, but it got Adam and Eve to do something that they were not explicitly supposed to do. Um, and so it's kind of like a punishment for uh, you trying to be clever and having someone else do something, but also there, you know, you're kind of accessory um, for your conspiracy against the Lord. Yeah, right. So there are these two traditions in the Abrahamic religions about this rebellion. And you know, the one that you've really just fleshed out there, Brent, this idea that uh, you know, putting Lucifer and and these other rebellious angels in the role of the uh, you know, the first the firstborn child who does not want to welcome uh, a baby sibling into the into the family is the tradition that we get. Well, we get it in the in in the Talmud, so it is part of Jewish tradition, but then it also is a part of the Islam tradition as well. And, and in some versions of this story, and we do get multiple versions of it, it's explicit that God creates human beings, he creates mortals, and wants then the angels to bow down to that creation, uh, to, to worship the creation uh, in some sense. And that this is where Lucifer says he will not do that. And, and many other angels uh, join him in rebelling against that. This is not actually what Christianity says, though. So this is something you can find in Judaism. It's something you can find in Islam. And, and also you can find it in a ton of urban fantasy literature you know, from the 1990s forward. But it is not the answer that Christianity gives. The answer that Christianity gives is that Lucifer was proud that it wasn't that he it wasn't that he was upset about the creation of mortals or being uh placed uh subservient to them which is you know the role of angels in in some sense is that they they serve the creation and that you know we are the creation essentially uh but that it's simply that he was proud that he wanted to be equal to god that it kind of has nothing to do with the existence of mortals or not that's the medieval christian worldview about this at least um and it is I think what's in, in Milton, though I should say that um, although I have been busy upon realizing how much we were going to need to talk about Dante and Milton, the Inferno and Paradise Lost, I have been reading. I am a little bit more than halfway through the Inferno right now, but I have not started on Paradise Lost yet, but I, I will have both works finished by the time we do the, the wrap-up episode and have 
maybe read some of the criticism as well. But so my recollection is that that's the tack that Milton takes. And I do actually think that that is the tack that Gaiman is taking here. I don't think actually that Gaiman is taking the version that we get from the Talmud or the version that we get in Islam. And and the reason I think that, well, maybe it's twofold. One of them is simply that pride is the key attribute that Dream lists in describing what the angel Samael was like. He was pride, some other stuff too, but he was proud. But then also I think the the timeline here is the key, right? Because this all happened 10 billion years ago, and this seems to be actually before creation happened, right? And so I think that that has to be Gaiman then going the Christian route here on this and saying that it was it was pride and not this uh, anger at having suddenly a, a baby sibling. Yeah, it, it, that might be very well, and um, you know, Occam's razor would probably give us that it is. Um, alternatively, time behaves strange because he talks about falling for an eternity, and obviously, you fell for less than an eternity. If, <laughs> right, not still falling. <laughs> not still falling. A falling done. Um, or the idea that you know we know there have been references to, um, and we'll see references in the future, even to like worlds that may have existed before our world. So it could be. As we were talking about before, in terms of the you know DC uh, multiverse and the cosmology of it, it could be that there were civilization that there were Kryptonians, maybe thousands or tens of thousands or even millions of years before there were humans on Earth, right? So, if there is one hell that is applicable, though not that is not just limited to Earth, but to all parts of the DC multiverse, then it could be that. It is that God showing favor for whatever it created first, which was not humans because the time frame doesn't fit, but that something else somewhere else in the universe was created first kind of thing. Right, because Lucifer also says that he has spent 10 billion years providing a place for dead mortals to torture themselves, and that can't be humans, right? That's yeah. uh, like and we're barely a fraction of, the, of of that time frame. So if if there have been dead mortals coming to hell for 10 billion years, most of them have not been Homo sapiens. They've been they've been something else. So yeah, that's trying to trying to work out the time frame here is maybe not quite the way to answer this question, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is what I love to do with, with the world building here. So it's fun to speculate. I, I'm also interested you know, in thinking just about the timeline here as well, that the rough estimate of the age of the universe by cosmologists you know, right now in, in 2021, Brent, is like 13 or 14 billion years. So- ago. I mean, you know, it's 13 or 14 billion years old. And I do think that that was, I, I tried to do a little bit of looking into this. I do think this was actually more or less the same number that we had in the 1980s and 1990s as well. I think there've been some refinement of that and uh, we've got some other evidence that we can use to support that claim. So it's interesting to me that Gaiman has picked 10 billion years here so that there's 4 billion years you know before mortals have been created 4 billion 4 billion years where they are all just in the silver city you know before his rebellion which which I think would make some sense actually but it's just interesting to think of this in terms of you know kind of anthropomorphic terms right of seeing these cosmic figures the creator lucifer angels and so on you know having 4 billion years in the silver city before they really get to the business of creating life and i wonder when it, the reference to the cold at the beginning of things here that lucifer that lucifer gives us you know it could be we're talking about the amount of happenings in 
terms of astronomy, right, and how much fusion and vision is occurring um, in the stellar sphere. But it could also be that, like, things were cold in the Silver City before there were mortals, because we're also presented with the idea throughout Sandman, and there was the discussion where, at the end of Doll's House, that Dream has with Desire about kind of you shouldn't toy with mortals. Maybe we're actually here for them. The idea that even though mortals are kind of the weakest in some ways, maybe everything does really revolve around mortals. And in that way, we as mortals are the ones who provide the warmth to things in some ways, as opposed to when things are kind of more kind of cold and antiseptic prior to all the messiness that mortal life brings. Yeah, that's a really awesome observation. I have a follow-up question for you about that, but actually something you've said makes me want to double back a little bit just to explicitly state that these numbers that Gaiman is giving us, right, 10 billion years, this then is a real signal, right, that Gaiman is adapting this Abrahamic cosmology, but he's also splicing it up with the the rational cosmology that we we get from from science since the scientific revolution that disagrees with a a literal interpretation of the age of the universe as worked out in early modernity by, well, not even early modernity, I guess, really, but sort of uh, the early part of high modernity, I will say, uh, in calculating that out to be somewhere six, five, four thousand years, depending on on which particular uh, uh, theologian was doing the, doing the counting. And so we're getting the same story but it's being inserted into this universe that is shaped by the observations of yeah yeah of, of astronomers and astrophysicists and cosmologists and and so on which is in itself like that's an interesting move that I think yeah I didn't comment on and we just kind of took for granted but I think yeah we should point that out yeah and I think it it'll play out even more as we get into this particular storyline even seasons of mist where we are going to see Neil Gaiman having a lot of kind of fun with taking a lot of different mythological and theological ideas and figures and splicing them into a single continuity, even though if you try to think too hard about it, a bunch of stuff doesn't line up at all for that to work. But it's kind of a, no, no, we're, we're going to have fun here. It's a comic book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> though, though, of course, we're going to think too hard about it because that's that's yes. what we do here. <laughs> we're going to think way too hard about it. But at a certain point, even we are going to wave our hands and go, well, he says eternity, but really what he means is probably just billions of years. Right. <laughs> right. And and it is fun. This is a really awesome, fun story. And yeah, so I want to get back to this question that occurred to me while you were thinking about how important mortals are, right? The Doll's House speech. Because- Lucifer says here that, you know, back at the beginning, Dream was there and he knew Lucifer. And no matter which answer we're going to take here about what was Lucifer's motivation for rebellion, or really just to say, did it happen before mortals were created or after mortals were created? Even if it was after mortals were created, it was moments. It was, there's Adam and there's Eve, and that's it. Now the rebellion is starting. So there, there are no Cain and Abel at that point. But Dream is here in the beginning, according to Lucifer. And if this is all happening, you know, if what he's describing, I guess, is uh, before creation, why does Dream exist, right? You know, do the endless exist before mortals do, or do the endless arise from the needs of mortals, you know, once they've been created, which is, I guess, what I would assume. Well, and I think we've had hints elsewhere that 
death has some role that at least extends beyond the last living thing, um, because she's supposed to turn out the lights and lock the door after everything. Um, and that would be after the last thing has perished, but not with the last thing perishing. So, um, and yeah, destiny's book, some of it maybe is written that details just, you know, physics principles coming into existence before you have biological things occurring before you have anything that is, you know, conscious life, um, to, to have the ability to dream perhaps. Um, but yeah, it's, it doesn't make sense. It, it kind of quizzically falls apart when you think about like, wait, so when did dream exist? But we also have reference to the fact that Lucifer says that dream was very different before. So maybe there was some kind of a proto dream that existed before there really were things to be dreaming. Um, cause there was the idea that there could be dreams. And in that way, perhaps even, you know, in his pride, you know, perhaps Lucifer did have some dreams himself about what he thought would be the way things would turn out when he tried to rebel. Right. And it's clear that Lucifer has a range of uh, emotions, right? So one of the things that Lucifer clearly has is desire, you, you know, whether he's rebelling before mortals are created or when there are two of them, he has a desire to rebel, right? A desire to go his own way here. So he's, you know, Potentially, then that might signal to us that the angels are, although not mortals in a kind of strict sense, may themselves actually be the sort of instigator of the creation of the endless in in some way, or at least part of them. Or perhaps, you know, the endless are actually created explicitly by the creator as something akin to angels in the sense of helping create and then order the different components of the universe, uh, the, the immaterial components of the universe, I suppose. Well, and that even plays in nicely with the idea of desire and despair are twins. Cause as soon as you realize that you want something and then you realize you can't have it, <laughs> like that's the same thought. And maybe that's, you know, what Lucifer and the other angels kind of experienced as well. I didn't want to mention, um, some of the, um, impetus for visually what's going on during this big speech. We have Lucifer who's standing on this rock pile as kind of dream is walking about him on the beach, sand, desert. And in High Bender's uh, Sandman Companion, um, Neil Gaiman uh, in an interview in it uh, says that it's partly inspired by the Peter Cook and Dudley Moore film Bedazzled. Um, he thinks the best scene in the film is when the devil climbs, climbs on top of a box and planting the role of God quickly demonstrate that it's more fun to be above it all receiving worship than down below supplying the worship. Um, so in homage to that scene, he gave Lucifer a rock to climb upon. Which I thought was fun. <laughs> yeah, I've not thought of Dudley Moore in decades. <laughs> so, uh, but maybe that needs to go on the list of things to check out between volumes of Sandman too. But uh, but I just thought that was fun because I'm like, why is it they're on a beach and then he's suddenly and at one point in the panel it looks like Lucifer is like surfing as he gets up on the rocks. It's just yeah, I mean hell is a it's it's a cool landscape for sure, which I think uh, we'll be talking about again when we pick our favorite panels. I mean most of the panels have some bit of hellscape in them, so I think we will uh, by default end up having to do that. 
Well, let's let's close out maybe our conversation on that big discussion that they're having. But Lucifer, you know, he's not done talking. He goes on to explain that the whole idea of the devil making people do wicked things and you know, trying to steal or uh, buy or trick people out of their souls, all of that is nonsense. That's that's something he has never done. He's got no reason to do that. He has no interest in people's souls. And Lucifer tells Dream here that for a long time, he enjoyed ruling the millions of demons in hell. Uh, He enjoyed playing their silly political intrigue games with them, even though he could have destroyed them all very easily. They never posed any kind of real threat to him, but he enjoyed these games. But now he is tired of all of that, and he he wants a change. And he thinks, you know, maybe, maybe he'll go live on the beach. Maybe he'll take up the piano. It doesn't really matter. Just it just wants anything other than being here. And this, to me, Brent, sounds very much like Lucifer is feeling at least a little bit of depression here, right? He seems to have you know, one of the real classic symptoms of depression, often the first one that people will will recognize, which is not being able to enjoy things that he likes. He doesn't get joy out of things that he knows that he used to get joy out of. Yeah. I mean, it could be that Lucifer is depressed. It could also just be that like he is maturing to his next kind of level of evolution or because there's always there's also a point in which there are things that brought you joy and they don't bring you joy anymore. But if you find something else that brings you joy, because he has the idea of of not just like, well, I'm no, I'm just gonna I don't I don't want to go anywhere. I'm just going to go off to the void. I'm going to hang out in the wind between the worlds, right? It's not that. He's like, well, maybe I'll just go sit on a beach. So it's it might be depression, but it also might just be him going through a maturing or an evolution in which he is going into a new kind of form because he's just realized, like, I am done with that part of my existence and I – now want to go ahead and do the responsible thing of locking things up and making sure things are taken care of, sort of. Don't care about the souls who are leaving here, but I'll make sure the physical realm that I'm sort of responsible for, I guess, goes somewhere and then I'll go off to a beach. Brent, I need to ask you, I guess, with your your comics historian hat on again, because I have forgotten, though I was aware of the Lucifer spinoff at the time. What what point does the Lucifer you know, solo comic start? Is it af- right after this, or is there a gap of a few years? Yeah, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, okay. So if this if the Lucifer spinoff, you know, isn't until after the run of Sandman, I think we'll have to we'll have to wait until we have concluded Sandman. Even though I am itching to go take a look at it. So, uh, after this big speech, uh, we see Lucifer, um, with Dream Company wandering throughout hell and locking various doors in various places. And, you know, there's one where it's a gruesome kind of torture, uh, scene where there's a butcher block table that's very bloody, um, and an iron maiden and a swinging, um, uh, scythe on a pendulum, um, and a rack and, all kinds of, and a, there's a head there um, that looks kind of like Dream's head. Um, and then we see him, you know, inserting it into some kind of gooey, kind of really super gross, uh, <laughs> almost living organism thing. But it's translucent enough that when he inserts it, we can still see the bounds of the key. And then we also see this little gate um, that could just exist somewhere in the countryside. 
Right. And as Lucifer is locking up the the last of the gates here, there are there are three things that happen. And and one of them is that the demon Mazakin is here and she wants to go with Lucifer wherever he's going. And, and that's because she she loves him. But he says that she can't come with, right? Wherever he's going, he wants to go alone. That's a big part of what's what's going on here, I think, is just that Lucifer might need a little bit of alone time, in fact. And the second thing is that Lucifer he needs Dream to cut off his wings, and, and Dream accommodates here, and I find that an interesting choice. This seems like a dangerous move to make, but he cuts off Lucifer's bat wings, uh, you know, presumably so that Lucifer can pose as a, a mortal of, of some sort. I'm actually not quite sure why Lucifer would need his wings cut off, and maybe we should we should take that up. But then finally, also, Lucifer says that, and this is, you know, the, the important plot element here, Lucifer says that now that they are outside the gates of hell, he can harm Dream without violating his oath. And so he gives Dream the key to hell. Uh, it's Hell is now Dream's property, and maybe that will destroy Dream. Maybe it won't, but it certainly is going to make Dream's life more difficult. And uh, that's where we end. Regarding Mazikeen, uh Leslie Klinger has a note from the script in which uh, Neil Gaiman mentions that uh, the scene with Mazikeen is, quote, this is the scene that just sort of grew in my head after I saw your pencils for the half-headed woman Mazikeen, Kelly. She just looks so good. And despite the fact the poor woman is almost unintelligible to the point where I wound up going over every line of her dialogue with Tom Payer, who is the uh, assistant editor of Sam at the time, um, getting him to say it out loud and rewriting phonetically any he couldn't make sense of once he had, I still want her back. I'm intrigued by a character who is simultaneously attractive and disgusting, the strange push-pull that generates. Anyway, in this panel, we can't see her clearly. She's just a female shape coming toward us through the mist, foggy and out of focus, or at least obscured by the cloud in front of her. And this is after he – we're actually in that no man's land here because he's – Lucifer has locked the last gate of hell. And initially, I thought that they were still in hell, but I'm like, nope, they've locked it from the outside. So, she followed his instructions, Lucifer's instructions, and she is – she left hell, but she does want to be with him and follow him because she loves him. So I think this does suggest as well, going back to one of the initial questions that I asked about, you know, I don't know, property law <laughs> you know, on the, in the interdimensional planes here is that, yeah, this is clearly not Lucifer's domain. This is really not the the bounds of, of hell in any legal or literal sense, which, yeah, I, I'm glad to, I'm glad you pointed out that uh, clearly that must be the case just based on the way that, that Mazikeen is is here, but is not regarded by Lucifer as someone who he needs to kick out. And then of course, also we get the whole business with, we're not in hell anymore, so I'm no longer bound by that oath. And here's this horrible thing I'm going to do to you, which is to uh, give you the deed, the title to the property of hell. In regards to him cutting off the wings, um, I'm not entirely sure what is going on there, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what my head canon is. And then I want to hear your reaction to it, Glenn. So on the one hand, you know, when we get a little bit of the flashback of him falling from the silver city and ending up after eternity in hell, um, that his wings burned off from the fall. Um, and I think we see this later, at least in the books of magic, where we see part of the fall, um, beautifully rendered for us, uh, there, um, the wings burn off, and so the wings he has now are not his angelic wings. They are these kind of bat-looking wings that he has, you know, perhaps be 
because of his connection to hell. And so on the one hand, the wings are kind of symbolic perhaps of where he is, but also for Lucifer in terms of his arc as a character, you know, when he is an angel, he has these kind of wings. When he changes jobs and is Lucifer in hell, then he has these kinds of wings. So symbolically, he just needs to make sure he changes wings. It's like he's changing uniforms because he's working in a different place, right? So that's part of my headcanon. The other part of my headcanon is Dream hasn't had to do anything at this point. You know, he showed up and he walked slash, you know, traversed hell with Lucifer and listened to him. But he hasn't had to actively participate in any way. And when we get the panel where he agrees that he would hack off the um, the wings, we get a couple kind of, you know, vicious panels of, of him doing this and holding the wings and the kind of a glinting of the blade. And it feels like this is a point in which Dream is actively, you know, he is he's causing harm to Lucifer. I mean, Lucifer's asked for it, but – he's kind of more actively participating in a way. And I'm wondering if that was necessary for whatever ritual also involved the king, the key being handed over that like in the way it's, you know, may perhaps dream had to defeat quote unquote Lucifer and, you know, symbolically tearing off his wings is showing that. And therefore he gets Lucifer's kingdom. Um, Or it could just be that, um, if the key is a bad thing to have, that Lucifer has to get Dream to actively participate in a way to accept the thing that is bad. Um, and him doing this violence, even if requested, to a thing is kind of, you know, the payment, so to speak, is that he gets the curse of the key if the key is in fact a curse and does in fact bring him um, uh, a lack of harm. There's also a little bit of foreshadowing here in terms of, you know, the amount of blood that then Dream does shed from someone else at his own hand, literally, as opposed to, you know, the Corinthian going and causing someone damage. So, but what are your thoughts on any of that? Well, yeah, I think this is a really a series of astute observations, Brent, because I just have this feeling here like all of this, maybe not all of it, but that this bit, the cut off my wings, is kind of a ruse that it's the bloodshed somehow really matters, that that Lucifer is making kind of a joke here and saying, well, I, I promised I wouldn't harm you while we were in hell. Now we're outside of hell, so I can harm you. And what I'm going to do is give you the key, ha, 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 but that maybe actually the getting dream to cut off the wings is setting something in in motion that dream has violated some kind of rule here you know doing something like that to lucifer uh you know just thinking in the in terms of like the mark of cain which we had in the last issue right that there are special rules about doing things to cain maybe there are with lucifer as well dream just doesn't know them uh, something like that it just feels like this is a kind of a trick to me here. And, you know, I'm certainly reading that into the scene, you know, thinking about who Lucifer is and maybe just also, yeah, feeling like there definitely is some dramatic tension in this moment. And so, yeah, tying that to this is how Lucifer is able to give him the key is actually a really nice way to to marry those two ideas. Well, I've got some other questions here for you, Brent, because on this page, or at least, you know, in this part of the the story, we get some business here with Lucifer you know, talking about 
where hell's inhabitants have have gone the the dead souls and the and the demons right dream asks him where lucifer just says that he's sent them a, a, away so he says he doesn't know where they went and then gives us this list of places they may have gone it's heaven earth and limbo and i made a big deal earlier actually about how limbo is not here right outside of the gates of hell the way that it is for dante but i guess actually limbo exists somewhere it's just not right here so maybe it is over those mountains or something like that which is what you were arguing for brent but then he also on this list there are four things heaven earth limbo and then the far realms and he says who knows but uh the question i have is what are the far realms is this something that's from dc comics or is it something else? I think this is explored a little bit more in like the books of magic miniseries where there's a discussion about different kind of planes and the far, the well, fairy is very close. And we already talked about this with Midsummer Night's Dream that it is very close to, and at one time there were many entrances and exits um, between kind of us and fairy. The exits have been closed, but perhaps they're still close to each other. But the far realms are things that exist a little further out. Um, but I also think they're kind of like nodding at the idea of even a Lovecraftian, like, you know, you've got things that are, they're part of existence, but they're so far out of existence that you've just got these, you know, um, kind of cosmic far off horror things that may not exist in simple than the three dimensions that we think about. Right. Um, so I think it's probably kind of a nod at that is what's going on. Right. And I, I guess here earth, you know, must just be kind of a, a stand in for uh, the, 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 the prime material universe, I think, is that what you called it earlier, Brad? Yeah, right? the prime material plane. Yeah. <laughs> yes, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, this is a very human-centric uh, way of depicting this story. But as we talked about earlier, most of the inhabitants of hell, I mean, the dead soul inhabitants of hell, must not be the souls of Homo sapiens, right? And so when we're getting this, you know, the use of Earth and the fact that everyone looks like a Homo sapien in some sense here, all of that is for I guess our benefit as the consumers of this of this story, it's not maybe a literal interpretation of that. Or do you think that Lucifer said Earth? I think it's not a literal interpretation, um, but I'm not entirely sure. But I mean, um, minor spoilers for things to come. We are going to see some effect on Earth, but I believe what we're seeing is clearly something that did exist here before and returns to here, and not something that is you know. Uh, alien in the sense of even like Martian or Kryptonian, um, let alone something that's from further away um, that exists. And I will note here um, in the Sandman, a Sandman Companion by High Bender, um, during one of the extensive interviews that he did with Neil Gaiman, there's a little bit here about this discussion of where all of these things went um, and the reference to that. And Neil says, uh, quote, I actually planned that as a major subplot and even wrote the first seven pages of it, but I ended up throwing it all away. It was good material involving creepy magical types on the run, a young lady named Zold Bane and her baby Anthony, a group calling themselves the Fashion Satanists, and the return of Daniel Bustamante from issue one. It would have been a very cool story, but it also would have taken a lot of space, probably making Season of Mist run for four more issues than it actually did. And at the time, I didn't want to strain the patience of my readers with a 13-issue storyline. Um, in retrospect, I wish he had. 
Yeah, I mean, can we start a petition to get him to to do that now? <laughs> yeah, can we at least get the the filler uh, of yeah what else happens um, in addition to what we will see? I mean, um, I would I would be first in line to get a a four issue arc of that a hundred percent. I will, yeah, let's let we we got to get him to write that now. But before we get to the next issue, we need to finish talking about this one. We need to talk about the cover. I'll uh, talk about the um, summary text that we get in lieu of, uh, of of actual titles for these particular issues. And then we'll pick some favorite panels. But uh, the cover first. And okay, so Brent, yeah, this cover, this cover is actually Lucifer, right? This is Lucifer this time? Yes, this is Lucifer. In fact, um, we've more or less seen this cover before, uh, which... Uh I it seemed familiar, um, not just because I'd seen this before, but uh, uh, upon this reread, um, but it was confirmed in uh, Dave McKean's Dust Covers book um, that this is kind of a close up um, with some additional text that's been added, but of part of the image that forms cover the cover for issue four when he goes to hell originally. Um, so this is a close up of Lucifer's face with um, a lot more, again, kind of text around it. But uh, there we had, um, we still were doing kind of the, um, well, there was burnt pages of manuscripts um, on the left and right, because this is in the early issues, uh, readers may recall that we had the kind of the centerpiece that then there were like bookshelves on either side of the main frame. Um, And then there was, you know, uh, Lucifer's like upper torso, and you could see like all the curls of his hair. Um, while as here, we have a little bit of his hair you can kind of make out, but mainly it's kind of cold, um, almost alien looking eyes. And it's really just, just his face that is, um, the thing that's viewable. Yeah, and the thing that's on the sides here, yeah, you know, it's not bookshelves this time, but it's it's architecture, and uh, that's got to be hell, right? That's uh, uh, this has got to be part of uh, you know either the gates or you know, some settlement within hell, but you know, giving us a bit of of hell as a kind of built environment uh, behind Lucifer. Well, and it's uh, you know we we see a lot of arches there, but they're they're empty, right? Um, so there's it's 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 an empty hell. And uh, and looks pretty gothic too. Right, looks more gothic than the the gates look. So maybe this is this is where the Notre Dame stuff actually perhaps comes in. Um, so the subtitle for this issue, of course, the title being Seasons of Mist, Chapter Two, very descriptive. Um, so the subtitle we were presented with is in which the Lord of Dreams returns to Hell, his confrontation with the Lord of that realm, in which a number of doors are closed for the last time, and of the strange disposition of a knife and a key. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, this is stuff that we see. This all happens here, right? But things that jump out to me in thinking about what Gaiman is emphasizing in this summary is that you know the knife and the key at the end have a, a kind of equality here, right? It's not that, uh, uh, and, and that may back up what you were suggesting about the significance of cutting off the wings, right? That that is a real precursor to gaining possession of the key, that the knife here is just as important as the key, or that they are wrapped up together as a kind of, a kind of unit. Well, did you pick a, a favorite panel, Brent? What is your favorite panel in this issue? And this is going to come as somewhat of a, a cop-out when we have such wonderful visages of hell. But I think my favorite panel is on page 17, um, where uh, Dream is accompanying um, Lucifer as he's locking all of these gates. And after being in this, you know, torch chamber and then being in, you know, this place with this kind of strange, gross, organic stuff. But before they go to what is likely his conference room in uh, 
you know, downtown New York. Hell. <laughs> um, we get uh, the small gate, um, which reminds me a lot of um, depictions that Neil uses in many other places, um, including in Stardust um, and including in Books of Magic and other things of just like these small little gates between, you know, that, that um, you can see over the wall. Um, and so they're denoting a transition in space and the fact that something is locked, but there's nothing, anything, there's not anything here to just stop someone or even frankly, like, you know, a wandering herd of animals to literally just step over this wall. So it's, it's kind of the nature of there being these lines that are drawn, but then getting you to think about what they mean, but also the fact that there are many other places where it's like you clearly are entering or exiting hell if you're walking in or out of this particular setting, except for here, which is, nope, you might just be on a path and you don't quite realize that you have now wandered into hell. Yeah, this is a really fascinating, I mean, one, this is a, an interesting pick, Brent, but yeah, this is a really fascinating image. I mean, this, yeah, this wall is not for people, this wall is for sheep. This is... Uh, you know, the big, uh, you know, full, the long uh, horizontal panel that we get of, of Lucifer and Dream on a hill, looking at that wall, uh, that, that's two panels before we actually get them at the gate with Lucifer locking it up. What that is, that's, that is a, that is a stone wall in the English countryside. They are in the rolling hills of England here. That's, that, that's the, that's the model for this landscape. So yeah, clearly the wall itself doesn't matter. The wall is a representation of something that is numinous, something that is maybe maybe spiritual or, or supernatural in some way, that there is a real barrier there, that the walls, even the, the really impressive Cyclopean H.R. Geiger walls that we get on the title page are just representations of the fact that there is some kind of numinous or supernatural boundary there. But then I, I wonder, I hadn't paid attention to this before, Brent, but maybe this is limbo. Maybe this is the Elysian Fields here, the nice rolling English countryside. This is the gate to, to limbo, I think. Well, and it might very well be, except for it looks the same on both sides in the panel that we're given, which is the fascinating thing to me. And it reminds me of... Um, in thinking back to the first issue, the prologue for Seasons of Mist, where Destiny is wandering uh, his garden, um, and there's many options. It's always constantly forking in front of him. But if you turn around, there was a clear path all along. And this is one of those things where, like, you might accidentally have made a decision that you thought nothing of and took the fork that took you through this small little, you know, gate that you didn't realize you've transited from the Elysium Fields into hell. In retrospect, you'll probably see it quite differently, but it's those little things sometimes that are the things that kind of catch you up. Um, also here in the word balloons, um, in this part of the uh, monologue that Lucifer is giving, he mentions that he had grew weary, mightily weary, I cease to care, which on the one hand gets back to the comments you made, uh, Glenn, where you asked, like, you know, is Lucifer experiencing kind of depression or is it he ceased to care about what gave him joy before what does he care about now and what might he be doing which causes him to care quite a bit uh, particularly if pride again is what we're told is a central feature of him which dream himself says you are very proud and we know from their prior encounter that dream made him look 
kind of foolish. So is this all just an elaborate way to perhaps um, bring um, difficulties to dream in response for affronting his pride? Because it is the thing that he cares about, maybe even more so than being the ruler of hell. It is so hard to not think that all of this is just a trick, that all of this is just a really, really, really big trick. It's so hard not to think that. But I do think, you know, if we take his words literally, we take them at face value, think that he really means them. There are you know, two ways to to hear him say this this dialogue. One of them is that he is numb and the other is that he's bored. And yeah, I'm just not sure which. I think you're leaning towards he's bored and wants to go start a new life, but I, I, I think I'm leaning a little more towards numb. But it will be interesting, one, to see where the story for Lucifer goes here in the Sandman, then if we actually check out some Lucifer comics at some point as well. But also what the adaptations do. I know you have already listened to the Audible adaptation for this, Brent, but I have not, so don't spoil the way that they uh, they take that tone. But then also, of course, eventually the TV show. Uh, so what was your favorite panel? So I picked a, a panel on on page ten at the top right. I could not resist you know, landscape of of hell. Though you've got some too as well here. Uh, <laughs> this is where Dream and Lucifer are flying over this early modern European town in hell. I really like the chaotic look of this, the kind of unplanned look of this. I mean, you know, to our eye as Midwesterners, right? The fact that this clearly does not have uh, a grid pattern to its streets uh, and so on. Uh, It's got tall houses. They're all jumbled together. There are some shadowy towers in the background. I, I think all of that's just beautiful. But what I love most about this is that it just gets my imagination going. I, I, I want to know who lives in this town, right? Like, is this a town for demons? Is this a town for souls? And if it's for souls, then you know what type of punishment is this for? Like, what what is the nature of the punishment that's being doled out here? We don't get any answers. We, we almost certainly never will. But it's a it's a great uh, great prompt for some fan fiction, I think. Yeah, no, it's it's a really great um, panel, um, and I particularly like the way it plays well with the symmetry of the panel immediately below it, where. The mountains that we have replacing the town might as well still be the town. Um, and it, it, it helps that the text in that refers to, um, you know, the shadow between heaven and hell. Um, but I really like kind of the idea of like, yeah, who lives here? On the other hand, like, you know, are they in a completely different part of hell? I think they're supposed to be between those two panels, but in maybe it's just the different way you look at it where literally they have not moved that far and they're at the far left of the same place. And by the time they get to the far right, it's just that from a certain point of view, a desolate wasteland may be the way that you feel in your, you know, small city. (laughs) (laughs) And those mountains are awesome too. That was actually a strong contender for me, but uh, I think it's probably too hot there and and dry. So I'm just going to go for the town because that town, that town has a pub. Um, And so I'm hoping, you know, it's the demons who live there because then it might be a real pub though. If it's a, a torture pub, I'll no, thank you. But uh, <laughs> but the mountains definitely they're going to be arduous for. So <laughs> I decided to pass. Well, uh, I guess that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com.
If you would like to support the network and help keep this show on the air and also get access to dozens and dozens of bonus episodes from around the network, uh, please check us out on patreon.com slash Media. We really appreciate all the support that we get from listeners. And we will be back next month with Season of Mists Chapter 3. And until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>